0: We come to Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33, as we now continue in this rejection that Jesus was receiving as he came into Jerusalem, and now here by a second group uh, known as the Sadducees. If you would read with me and hear the word of God, beginning at verse 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would send the Spirit of God upon the preaching of your word, that with ears we may hear, and with eyes we may see, and with hearts we may understand the truth. And may the truth set us free. We pray that you would take and work the gospel in our lives and that the resurrected Christ this hour would be working his power in us, giving us life and giving it to us abundantly and that the joy that we have in him might be full. So apply this text, apply the word to our hearts this day with your spirit so that it would not return into you void and glorify your holy name in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. As you're seated, if you would just look at your hands. Look at your hands. If everybody does it, it's not as uncomfortable. Kids, look at your hands. I've noticed my hands over the years getting more wrinkled and, and leather like. As you look at your hands, well, do you believe that those same hands that you're looking at? will one day be cold and lifeless and be put in the grave. And do you believe that those same hands that you're looking at, which would be cold and lifeless and put in a grave, will one day be raised and live again? Well, the the powerful Jewish sect that now approaches Jesus, did not believe that. We see here the Sadducees who deny the resurrection. They come to Jesus and they ask him a question. They ask him a question about the resurrection of which they had denied. And the question that I thought about is, how can you be one of the most elite Jewish groups and not believe one of the most fundamental doctrines of the scriptures. How is it someone living so close to the truth can be so completely off base? That is a question we all need to wrestle with, being very close to the truth. And the truth is always in contrast with our humanism. Every one of us battles the old religion that we once embraced, a religion that is still very prevalent in the world, a religion in which we were born in our fallenness with humanism, our pride and our self-centeredness, our our intellectual capital, our self-confidence, our self-assurance, that old ego that does more to inhibit our understanding of the truth than any other factors in our lives that old flesh. This is the very reason we harbor bitterness, why we feel envy, why we defend our perspectives against all potential threats, why we compete in the arena of self-righteousness, why we argue, why there is war. And this is the default life that we are born into due to original sin. And the Sadducees and what they represent to us in bringing this question is a warning for us all to the extent of how far we can go in unbelief, even living so close in proximity to the truth. If we suppress the truth with our prideful positions... It is a wonder that God would even desire to do a miracle in us, to turn us away from our heinous, antithetical, humanistic characteristic that opposes all of his beauty and truth and goodness. It is a miracle. And yet he he has done this for us. He's done it for you. He's done it for me. Today we have the Sadducees attempting in a malicious intent with, with a heart of a motive that is in their humanistic perspective, and not to glorify God, we have them attempting to trap Jesus in another question. Our current passage is is nestled in the context of three questions that would be brought to Jesus, all with the intent to trap him in his words so that they would have a justifiable reason for killing him. Benjamin Franklin coined the term that in this particular time of the year we're pretty sensitive to. There are two things that are certain in life, fill in the blank, death and taxes, yeah, And those are actually the subjects of the two first questions here that Jesus faced. Last time we were dealing with taxes, and today we're dealing with life and death. It's a very simple outline, the same outline as last time. Uh, The question gets asked, and second of all, Jesus answers the question, and third, we see the response of the people. So let's first of all consider the question and who it was delivered by. We see this sect called the Sadducees now coming. And the Sadducees were one of those Jewish sects that arose along with the Pharisees during the intertestamental period after the book of Malachi was finished and uh, before Matthew uh, began with the life of John the Baptist. We have a period of about 400 years And during the time between when the Old Testament was closed and the canon of the new began, or at least in the life of those who lived, uh, you have a time when three Jewish sects rose up in prominence. One was the Pharisees, and the other was the Sadducees, and another was the Essenes. The Pharisees, by way of reminder from our last time together, they were separatists, And they represented the stiff formalism of Judaism. At the heart of the Pharisaic enterprise was the desire to make the law relevant for the new age in which they lived. And during the rise of the Pharisees, you also have the rise of the oral tradition or the oral law, which was... A commentary on the law of God to make it relevant to the new age in which they live. And they had a tremendous influence on the population, the large populace of the Jewish um, people in the time of Palestine and Galilee in that, in that day. They, ha- they could even have the ability, according to Josephus, to sway the population even against kings and the high priest, from which the high priest was from the Sadducees. As the temple was becoming more and more removed from the private life of most Jews, we have this rise of the Pharisaical movement within the the synagogues that were spread all around the, the dispersion. And you have the an increasingly uh, political and aristocratic class that was focused at the temple, and we'll learn of that as the Sadducees. And so you had somewhat of a competition between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And a shift was being taken place away from the centralized place in Jerusalem at the temple out into the land where the Jews often lived, spread upon uh, the land of Palestine. And that's where the rise of the strength of the Pharisees took place. They were the party of the synagogue, not the party of the temple. Now the Sadducees, the ones that we are now considering before us, are a much smaller sect, but a very powerful and influential sect. We read less of them than we do of the Pharisees, and yet they were inseparably linked to the temple. That is why when the temple was destroyed in eighty seventy, we do not see the Sadducees anymore. We do see the Pharisees, however. They were an aristocratic class. They were a priestly class. They were drawing their base and support from the upper class of society as well as the priesthood, the Sadducees occupied the dominant seats of the great Sanhedrin, Um, and while they were lesser Sanhedrins, the great Sanhedrin was the one in Jerusalem and the temple, and it was the Jewish court, which was the strongest and most powerful in the land, which also includes both religious matters and political matters, and they could adjudicate in both of those realms for the Jews. The high priest came from the Sadducees. They were a dominant political force in, in Palestine and up until the time of A.D. 70, and their, their viewpoint was very secular. They were pragmatist. And with Rome, they were practical and pragmatic-minded to figure out how we can live within the context of the Roman uh, imperial government. And they rejected the oral law which the Pharisees heartily subscribed to, because it was the Pharisees' manner in which they could then take the law and make it relevant to the New Age with the commentary on the written law. If you've ever looked at the oral law and considered how much they have actually changed and continued to actually uh, edit a lot of the commentary and interpret the oral law uh, in order to make it continuously re- relevant to a new and proper fresh age. Well, the the Sadducees rejected the oral law. The only thing that they hold to is the Torah, uh, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we see from this passage that it was clear that they deny the resurrection, which the Pharisees held to. Now... They didn't just deny the resurrection, they denied angels, they denied the spirit in man after he is dead, in other words, life after death in any form. And so there was a denial of of these matters. In fact, we know the Sadducees in Scripture characteristically by what they denied. I think there's a lesson that we can learn from in that respect. There's quite a bit of competition between the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, competitiveness for the power of the populace as well as the religious leadership of the Jews who lived in that day. You might understand this better in the light of Acts chapter 23 when Paul was then brought before the court, the Jewish court, and he knew that he was in the presence of both Pharisees and Sadducees and with some cleverness, he brings up the issue of the resurrection that sets the Pharisees and the Sadducees off against each other, kind of now ignoring the focus of the matter, which was Paul himself. And he, set, he, he he's able to stir the pot up against these two groups on this debate over the resurrection. And in that debate, as it has always been the case, the Pharisees always had a disadvantage. And they had the disadvantage because the Sadducees only accept the Pentateuch. And so all of the other scriptures except for the Pentateuch would be rejected by the Sadducees. And so therefore for the Pharisees were unable to use the rest of the scriptures or the scriptural arguments from other passages because the Sadducees would simply reject them out of hand. It would be much like us today arguing with the Jew over Jesus being the Messiah. And we go to our New Testament, and they of course would deny that. It was fair game because the New Testament is, is, is our but not theirs, and so they would discount any argument from the New Testament. That's basically how it was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when the or Sadducees then came to Jesus with this loaded question to trap him in his words, we can now begin to see the political build-up happening right there in Jerusalem. Last time we see where the Pharisees, who were at odds with the Herodians, in fact, the ones that they hated, they they hated each other so much that their hatred for Jesus was the only thing that surpassed their hatred for each other. So they grouped it up with the Herodians, which is a very political following, in order to trap Jesus in the first question. Now you have a dominant political force and the Sadducees rising up against Jesus. So we see all of the politics and political powers in Jerusalem rising up and the heat is being turned up so that we should be able to feel the heat from all of these different quarters of power, religiously, politically, and we will see even... Rome get involved in this before it's over. The Sadducees come to Jesus with the question. And perhaps a question that they had used with the Pharisees, and one that they carefully crafted for this occasion, considering that in their hearing the Pharisees would be listening, and knowing that the parameters that they had set would be very narrow. Their issue doesn't have to do merely with the resurrection of life beyond the death in the body, but it has to do with life, life. In their debates with the Pharisees of the resurrection, the Pharisees at that point were at a disadvantage because of the limitation of the parameters that the Sadducees would set only on the Pentateuch. They would discount and would not use other passages like Job 19 when Job says, in my flesh I shall see God on the other side of the grave, in my flesh. One of the strongest resurrection passages in all of scripture is from Job. Or passages like Psalm 16, that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption in the grave. A key passage that the apostles would use later in bringing to bear upon the life of the resurrection of Christ. Or any of the many other Old Testament passages. And they were off limits in this particular argument. So the Sadducees would argue, you can't make your argument if you can't make it from the Pentateuch. And if you can't, our argument stands. If you look back over, they would say, if you look back over the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses in the law, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's how they would think about it. So they they felt like they had uh, the argument. One, hermetically sealed. Signed, sealed, delivered, shut, case shut. And so their question was bringing forth a case of an incident that they bring out of the law of God from the the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy on a leveret marriage. Leveret is coming from the Latin word brother-in-law. And they're bringing to Jesus a very highly improbable case, but it's in theory, okay, Seven brothers. Now, it's not an impossible case because Larry has that many kids, and so technically we could take all the Ryan boys and line them up and say, all right, theoretically, now, with the Ryans, uh, this would qualify for the number of brothers in this situation. But what they're bringing forth is reference very specifically in Deuteronomy 25, when a brother is to raise up children to him through his widow, to give his widow children to take care of her and to also preserve the family inheritance through his brother and to maintain his brother's name in Israel. And all of this was a part of the old covenant where names, inheritances, and genealogies were critically important to line all of this up with the coming Messiah so that we will know the Messiah when he comes. When Messiah comes, those endless genealogies are no more of benefit. But here it was very important. and It was part of the law that God had given in Deuteronomy from the Pentateuch. And the Sadducees bring to Jesus this question, a scenario from the Pentateuch, but they apply it now to the resurrection which they deny. They say, uh, you have a man that marries a woman, and they have no child, and he dies. And so a brother now marries her, and they still have no child, and then he dies. And then the third and the fourth, all the way to the seventh. And then finally, the woman herself dies. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You can also see at that moment, the... Kind of sit back, kind of smug, and they're just waiting. Now, no doubt, that would be a, a tangled up mess, would it not? I mean, whose wife would she be? Is it the first one that married her, and all the brothers are just carrying on his name for the inheritance, so therefore, truly, in the, would it be the first one? Or would it be the last one? Perhaps they had a child together, and so that child then verifies and validates the message in the eternal realm and in and the resurrection. And how do you untangle all that, right? That's their perspective. And Jesus now, in the quietness where probably a pin could drop, and all eyes were focused upon him, hardly have to list a voice when he then begins to answer and he said you are mistaken and he goes on to tell them two ways that they are mistaken knowing not the scriptures nor do you know the power of God You're wrong, Sadducees. You're completely mistaken. And you can almost hear the people leaning in on this one. To the most political power and religious power among the Jews. You're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And he's going to answer those two questions aspects of his answer in reverse order, beginning at verse 30, and then he's going addressing the power of God, and then verse 31 and 32 is they didn't understand the scriptures, verse 31 and 32. As we look at verse 30, he's going to be answering the question for them that they do not understand the power of God. He says, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. They didn't understand, and what they didn't understand was not merely that God was powerful enough to raise the dead, but he is powerful enough to raise them into a different level of existence. In fact, he is powerful enough to raise them into a different level of existence that the very question you're asking me becomes moot. You don't understand the power of God. Resurrected bodies are both like its present existence and simultaneously unlike them. And our Lord informs them regarding the power of God in the resurrection. They don't marry, and they're not given to marriage. Now, I remember a time that was very disturbing to me, especially when I was about to get married. And I thought deeply about the time, and then even after my marriage, and I've grown closer over the years to my wife, and I'm like, wow, what is it, you know? Not going to be married in heaven to my wife. And that can be disturbing for us from our earthly perspective, but we need to remember right here that God does all things well and He is very good and He is powerful. And you have to receive what Jesus says regarding His power, or else we're going to make the same mistake the Sadducees made about His power on this score. So don't lament. Young people and old people alike on that score. Not only is it within the power to resurrect us from the dead, but it is in his power to raise us up to a life in this body that so far exceeds the joy of this life, even of all the relationships in heaven with one another. We don't know what it's going to be like, but we do know it's going to be good. And it is going to be glorious, and it will far excel anything that we enjoy here in this earthly life. And the second thing he does is he now turns to the Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures, he tells them. And where does he turn to? He turns specifically to the Pentateuch, and he's going to answer them from the own Scriptures that they believe is authoritative have you not read, now I want you to notice very carefully how he words this in verse 33. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, and to look at the next few words, what was spoken to you by God? What was spoken to you Sadducees by God in the scriptures? That takes a little bit of time to let that sink in. This morning, right now, it is true for you, of what God has spoken in his word is to you by God himself in the very present moment as we speak. The first part he quotes now from Exodus 3 6. I need to imagine now at this point, I'm sure he's got the Pharisees' attention as he's arguing with the Sadducees over the resurrection from the Pentateuch. And he quotes from Exodus 3 6. I'd be willing to bet that several years from now, the Pharisees, having learned of this argument now from Jesus, would then probably take and use his argument against the Sadducees having learned from Jesus how to turn it against them, and yet perhaps maybe even when Paul stirred them up, but all still while denying the very one who is the resurrection and the life. That's how fallen our humanism goes. That's how twisted our fallen nature is. We can learn from Jesus. We can take things from God and then turn it around and use it against him. But how does this quote support the bodily resurrection? It's the way in which God refers to himself. Quoting from Exodus 3, 6, he says in verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, I am. The word I am is a a very unusual and particular um, construction. It was first given to Moses at this passage as God is speaking to Moses and he then reveals himself to Moses as I am. This in the Hebrew is something we refer to as the tetragrammaton, sometimes uh, translated Yahweh, sometimes Jehovah. The difference there being difficult because of the way the vowels and the consonants of this particular uh, grammatical construction is worked. We often acknowledge and always acknowledge this actually in our Bibles with the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital B. E. That is Yahweh. It's his proper name. But it is from a verb, which is a verb of being. I am. And the verb of being is in the present tense. I am. Always now. And God said, I am. Another way he he could have put it, when he was speaking to Moses over 400 years after the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the patriarchs, he he could have said, Moses, I was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he didn't do that. He used the present tense. Moses, right now. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses, right now as I'm talking to you, I am. I am your God. I am their God. And now 14 centuries later, Jesus is quoting this to the Sadducees after he says, this is what God has said to you. And he's saying it right now, 20 centuries later, on March the 6th, right now at 1135, God is saying this to you, I am. And in the way that Jesus is using that quote from Exodus 3.6, he's bringing it right into the present tense with the Sadducees, 14 centuries later, in exactly the same way he's bringing it right up into our present time, 20 centuries after that, to make it very present with us this day, right now. And that's part of understanding this hermeneutic that Jesus is using regarding resurrection and life. It is in the continual unbroken present tense, I am the God of the patriarchs, that the point now lies. Our Lord is inferring that the patriarchs continue to live, saying to the Sadducees, that is what the text implies. The present tense of that verb implies that the patriarchs continue to live now in the presence of God, who is continuing to live. And so are they. Now for us to consider this for a moment, because it gets a little more difficult, how are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living right now in the presence of God? In what state are they dwelling I think you would agree with me, they are living in a non bodily state. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The apostle would later uh, comment on this. Even from Job, he knew he was going to die and be in the grave and worms would eat him, but in his flesh one day he would see God. See? So there was a time. Where the bodies are separated from the spirit. But what he's getting at in the first part of the implied aspect of this argument is that they still are existing and they are alive today. So while I can understand this a little more clearly, and I can get my hands around that a little more readily. I have a little bit harder time understanding how this text has anything to do with the bodily resurrection, right? That's kind of where we're at with it. But you know what Jesus said? He's answering that question and he's saying to the Sadducees, you do not understand the scriptures. And he is chastening them for not being able to put it together regarding the truth of the resurrection based on this passage? Again, the answer is going to be by implication, not explicit statement. And we'll have to think about it from the Pentateuch in a holistic way. What is a human being by biblical definition taken from the Pentateuch? What is a human being? How did God reveal it? How did God create a human being? Genesis 2, 7 says that God took the dust of the ground and he formed it into a man and then he breathed into his life, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. That's what a human is. A human has two components a body and a spirit. I know some would say body, soul, and spirit, and he does sanctify us all three, but in this case, we're focusing on the spirit of God breathed into an earthen vessel. A dead corpse lying there, lifeless and breathless, is not human. And neither is a spirit without its body human. It's a person, it's alive. It has its faculties, yes. But when God made humanity, he made body and spirit. And what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, they're not just pure spirit. They are separated from their current bodies. But are they a pure spirit or are they human beings? A human is a spirit indwelling flesh and blood. That, by definition, biblically, is what a human is. And the text teaches bodily resurrection from a series of two inferences. Number one, I read that I am the God of the living from Exodus 3.6. And that text implies that they still exist. But if you use the argument for the resurrection, it also implies that for them to exist for what they truly are, human beings, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are going to have to be united with their bodies to be fully Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God spoke of them and revealed them in the accounts that we have in the Pentateuch. Did you track all that? They're fully human. And currently, they're not existing in their bodies, but they're still alive. And yet Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God has revealed them as humans, will one day be reunited to those same exact bodies while simultaneously not the same. Maybe I should take the word exact out. Now, there's no explicit statement in the Pentateuch about this. And Jesus says, but you are mistaken. You do not know the scriptures. Have you ever considered this, Sadducees, the God I am, and what those implications are to the living Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as I have revealed them to you in the scriptures? Now, there's an application here for us. It's actually a very powerful application in terms of the hermeneutic and how we interpret the Bible. If we are going to know the Scriptures, we're going to have to understand that the implicit and implied truth in the Scriptures is just as authoritative as the explicit statements of the Scriptures. Jesus argues from implicit and implied truth, and he expects us to be responsible for the implied truth of the Scripture. I think this was also brought up in the same in principle form when he was rebuking Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, and he didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, about being born again from Ezekiel. And we see this throughout. That's why Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, God's truth revealed by way of inference is just as authoritative to us. Now, we don't have to go and make it up. We're not allegorizing Scripture. No. This is God's intent for us. This is his truth to us, and we don't have to get creative with it. We just have to find out spiritually what has God thus said. And he tells the Sadducees they were mistaken not understanding the Scripture and the implied truth that it reveals. And there's a good lesson for us here for none of us to be too dogmatic saying that certain things cannot be or that they are impossible simply because we can't find them in the explicit statements of the Scriptures. We have to know the Scriptures. Now in this particular case, the Pentateuch implied and it taught the resurrection of which then the further scriptures would continue to fulfill and explore and give explicit statements. And we do have explicit statements in the Word of God, so we don't have to rely merely on the implicit teaching of the Pentateuch. But the point here is that had the Sadducees truly desired the truth and had a humility to accept it, God would have revealed it to them. It takes humility and an earnest desire to know the truth. You can understand The parables is what he would tell his disciples, if you trust me. Faith precedes understanding, as Augustine would say to Pelagius, not the other way around. One of the main reasons why you and I resist the truth is because the implications because of the implications that we think about. See, we think about implications. If truth is pushed up against my life and it it examines me and exposes me, I often think about those implications. What what changes do I need to make? Uh, the, The fear that I might have of what I have to face. Truth confronts all of our humanism so that we don't readily yield to it. In fact, we don't yield to it at all. It takes the power and miracle of God to work in our hearts, to humble us so that we can hear the truth, desire the truth, and to know the truth. And when we know the truth, the truth will set you free. Yeah, see? So Jesus answered the Sadducees that day, and the Pharisees, no doubt, were listening into the crowd as well, and we had the response in verse 33, and when the multitudes heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The Sadducees didn't have an argument. The Pharisees were taking notes, and none of them truly desired the truth. He who has ears, let him hear. That's true for us who live in such close proximity with the truth and yet fight and battle with our old humanism. As the plumb line of God's word is projected upon our life, it is a reminder here that we will only hear the truth with humble hearts. And to be squared up to it when we are willing to yield our lives to all of the implications that it could bear out in our lives, to bring them into the conformity with God's word, which was spoken to you this day. And so far off the plumb line had the Sadducees become, in consistently rejecting God's truth in their lives, they did not even have life, nor hope of life. They had no life. As we consider these hands this morning that we looked at at the beginning, the same hands that one day will lie cold in a grave, whose flesh will dissolve and whose skin will be done away with, those same hands will one day rise again will one day be the same hands and at the same time simultaneously be different. Jesus came to die and he was resurrected as the first fruits of our resurrection. And those same hands today have nail prints in them to demonstrate to us. Those are the same hands. And yet they are different. And he, bearing those scars, reminds us of who he is and what he has done for us so that today we can enjoy him in the life that he lives in us and know the resurrection. And we can know the life in Christ our King. This is the gospel. As we come to the table in just a few minutes, we need to come with humble hearts And willing spirits, yearning for the truth, dying to ourselves, don't matter what kind of implications that truth may have in our lives. Doesn't matter what we have to give up for King Jesus. We're going to kiss the son today. And we're not going to push back against him. And we'll know the truth. And the truth will set us free. So whether it comes to us in explicit forms with precepts and principles laid out clearly in the black and white of holy script or whether it's the scriptures that comes fully alive through the implications of what the spirit has given us we come to them yielding our lives completely to the lord of the truth the word made flesh to the glory of God in Christ Jesus this day. And he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness and to know the truth and to understand it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel that apart from your interceding in our lives when we were so entrapped in our humanism we would have been just like the Pharisees, denying all these glorious truths. But in the miracle of regeneration, you breathed into us now a new life, into these old dead humans. And we become a new creature in Christ, now united together with his body, so that as he lives now in the flesh, at the right hand of God the Father, we in him have true humanity today, true life today in his flesh. Oh, the profound mystery of the bride being united to the husband where the two become one flesh. We this day can have a taste of the resurrection in him even at the table as we come with our eyes open and our hearts ready to receive the truth, even in the mysteries that are before us. And we pray, Lord, that as we yield our lives humbly to obey the truth and obey the gospel, that you would set us free from all of our fears, anxieties, those things that we worry about and the implications that we consider. Quiet in our spirit today with the peace of God that passeth all understanding, knowing that you do all things well and you are very good. May we not minimize your power and may we understand the scriptures. To the glory of your Son, our risen Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.